morning, we're going to take a, a moment and talk about an event uh, that we gather around every year. We pass out palms. That's what we have uh, affectionately come to know as, as Palm Sunday. And, and it's one of those events in the Bible that, that has tremendous significance. I never get tired of uh, preaching through Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. Everybody's always like, what do you preach on? I'm like, it's kind of like the same story, but it's really powerful to consider what took place at that time. It's one of those events in the Bible that has, has tremendous significance, both, both historically, um, presently, um, and even in the future. And so the title of my message this morning is Palm Sunday, Stuck Between Two Verses. Palm Sunday, Stuck Between Two Verses. You'll understand a little bit more later on by what I mean by that. But I, I chose that topic because while Palm Sunday was an actual event that was prophesied about hundreds of years earlier by the prophet Zechariah, it's also something that we are awaiting its final fulfillment in. And so we're kind of stuck in time, if you will, waiting for the ultimate fulfillment of this glorious event that Zechariah prophesied about around 530 BC. Let's take a step back in time and see if we can make a little sense of this. Uh, the year, it's about 530 AD. And Zechariah is prophesying about the coming king of Zion. He is the long-awaited Messiah, the hope of Israel. All throughout the Old Testament, we see prophetic moments pointing to the one who is going to come and he was going to deliver his people from their sin. He was going to come and he was going to reverse the curse that, that was the consequence of disobedience in the garden. From Genesis on, we see the posture of the gospel, the, the, of the people of God looking for this coming one, the Messiah. Over 400 Old Testament verses pointing to this Messiah that was going to come hundreds of years prior to the birth of the Savior. This is very significant. You know the Bible in your hands that you hold in your hands? Um, this is not a one-volume book that can easily be dismissed. This is a Bible. The Bible is a collection of writings that was written over the course of over 1,500 years, 40 different authors, and there is a weave of, of a common thread of unity that is, that is woven throughout the Old and New Testaments. It is a miraculous book. The unity that, was, that, that is within the word of God declares its inspiration, declares its supernatural presence still in our very day. Never dismiss the authority of God's word, thinking it was just some book that a person wrote. Isaiah writes, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God it will stand forever. And so we see all throughout the scriptures the promise of one who is going to come. Centuries before his arrival, and then this event that we celebrate today, Palm Sunday, spoken about 530 years prior to its actual event taking place. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, Zechariah writes, 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Zechariah is writing about an event that will take place in Jerusalem. It will be a sign that the Messiah has come. And the Messiah will not be arriving on some white horse like a warrior, but this righteous king will come mounted on a donkey, entering into Jerusalem. And this is exactly what we see taking place in the scriptures. History reveals that this event took place 530 years to the very day that, they, that, the, that the prophet said it was going to happen. We see the fulfillment. It's written in each of the Gospels, but this morning we're going to take a look at this event through the lens of, of Matthew's Gospels. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn there with me or look above me at the screen. Matthew chapter 21 and verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem... And came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Let me just kind of pause there for a second. That sounds like Jesus just told them to go steal somebody's donkey, right? That's, that's not what is going on here, although it certainly looks like that. There was actually a tradition called Angaria, which was very common if a religious leader needed something um, to be used for a sacrificial or religious purposes, they had the right to commandeer somebody's uh, property. And so certainly, while it looks like Jesus just told him to rip somebody off, the reality is this was something that was acceptable, and that's exactly what happens. If anyone says anything, you just say the Lord needs them, and they will send them at once. This took place to fulfill this, what was spoken of by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, he's going back to what we see, um, Zechariah writing about, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, a fowl of a beast, a burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, put on them their cloaks. And Jesus sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. What an incredible scene this must have been in Jerusalem that day. It was that time of the years that the Jews from all around the world would come and gather in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. They would sacrifice a time of remembering God's deliverance of the people as they, as they passed over from, um, from bondage in, in Egypt to, to, uh, through, through the Red Sea. 
And they, they, we see that, that time after time, the people of God would come and they would remember what, Jesus, what God did for them as he delivered the people from bondage. And they would celebrate by having the Passover. And they would celebrate by slaughtering a lamb. And the people were gathering at this time from all around the world into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. A historian by the name of Josephus, who was alive during that time, wasn't even a Christian, wrote about this event in his writings and says that there was no less than two million people in the streets of Jerusalem that day. Could you imagine what that must have been like as Jesus enters into the city and people are crying out, Hosanna in the highest. And they're throwing their, their coats on the ground and they're, they're waving branches. John's gospel reveals to us that they were palm branches that they were waving back and forth. This was a time when the Jews were under tremendous oppression from Rome. They were overtaxed, they were mistreated and oppressed. They longed for a king who would finally rule for them, that they would have their guy on the throne. And the hope was that Jesus would be that king. Hence the response of the people that day in Jerusalem. Finally, we have our guy. Look at the popularity. Look at the excitement. Look at the willingness of the people. There's a lot going on in this scene that communicates the, the expectations of the people. They were gathering in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover you see, they came to sacrifice a lamb, just like they had done year after year after year prior to this event. But this year is going to be different. The sacrificial system that was in place would point to the lamb, the one that all the previous lambs would point to, those that were, that were sacrificed as a type of the one who would come and give himself. And he would come and deliver people from the slavery of sin. And the scripture pointed to the, to the specific day in which this would happen. And this was that very specific day. If they had studied the scriptures, they would have known to the very day that their Messiah was entering into Jerusalem. But sadly, the Jews, they weren't looking for a Messiah that would deliver them from sin. They were looking for a king that would deliver them from Roman oppression. They were extremely short-sighted, looking to have a little ease while on this earth. They failed to recognize that the Messiah was in their midst, the one who would deliver them from the bondage of sin. And so we see the response of this people who waited and was excited that finally we have a king. Matthew chapter 21 and verse eight says, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and, and spread them on the road as well. 
The spreading of the cloaks on the ground was their way of saying that they were willing to lay down their lives. Their their, their cloaks represented their very lives. And what they were saying to Jesus is now is the time. We've got the people. We've got the influence. We've got the power. And you're the guy. And they laid their cloaks down, a symbol of saying, we will lay down our lives for you. They would wave these palm branches Something that they would do when a, when a general would return back victorious from war. And so this is an extremely political event that was taking place in Jerusalem. And you see their desire to be free from their temporary oppression failed them to be, to, failed them to, failed, they failed to recognize the freedom they could have had spiritually. They were so zealous for this king, but they were so misguided. They were so misguided, so much so, that Luke, when he records this event, he he adds in verse 41 of chapter 19, and when, when Jesus drew near and he saw the city, not just the city, but the people, the response, when he saw what they were looking for, and he saw the posture of the people. He drew near the city and he said he, he wept over it. He wept over it. Saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for your peace. Jesus is saying, if you only knew, if, you, if anybody should have known you who are students of the word, you should have known that I was entering into Jerusalem on this very day. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. What makes for peace is not a king who will overtake Rome. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you and your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation, because they failed to recognize who was in their midst. Jesus says judgment is going to come, and history records the event that Jesus was referring to in AD 70 when the Romans came in, and they completely destroyed the temple and the people, scattering the people all over the world, women, children, dying. They missed the day of visitation, and they paid dearly for it. That was the time to embrace their Messiah. But instead they sought for a king. And Jesus, upon entering Jerusalem, he wept. Getting back to Zechariah's prophecy, we see in verse 9 of, of chapter 9 of Zechariah, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. This was fulfilled in the streets of Jerusalem that day when Jesus entered into Jerusalem on the donkey. The palms were flowing, the branches where people were shouting, but they failed to recognize the king of kings was in their midst but that's not the end of what Zechariah tells us about 
Oftentimes we read Zechariah's prophecy in chapter 9, we read verse 9, and it points us back to this event, and rightly so it does, but it doesn't end there at verse 9. It moves on to verse 10. Verse 10 says, And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and, and he shall speak peace to the nations. He shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. What Zechariah is prophesying about is more than a one-time occurrence that's going to happen when Jesus, if, if Jesus were to take up the kingship there in that day. But, but Zechariah is prophesying about an eternal reality that is yet to come. The picture that Zechariah paints is of a time where he will bring an end to war. Where he will speak peace to the nations. And he will rule from sea to sea, from river to the ends of the earth. How many know that has not happened yet? And you see, this isn't talking about heaven, the final end for all because that is not a time where there'll be ruling needing and needed and peace being spoken because peace will be the reality of every other time. And so this is speaking of a very different time. You see, the frustration that the disciples and the people had was they thought that Jesus was going to set up his kingdom and rule and they would rule and reign with him. Right there and right now. That's why they're crying out, Hosanna which means save now, put it in motion now. But the fullness of Palm Sunday is still to come. We're just stuck between two verses. We've experienced verse nine, but verse 10 is still yet to come. Zechariah prophesied that Christ would come riding on a donkey. A donkey was a symbol of, of peace and humility. It was a lowly creature that, that symbolized the way in which Jesus would come and be amongst the people. He would demonstrate a posture of meekness and humility and gentleness. But there's another Palm Sunday that Zechariah is referring to. John records this for us in the book of Revelation, and we're going to take a look in the book of Revelation this morning. In fact, you're going to get an overview of Revelation probably quicker than you've ever gotten before, right? We could spend years going through Revelation. We're going to do it in five minutes, all right? Let me give you just a little bit of an overview of Revelation, right? So we see right in the beginning of Revelation chapter 1 and verse 19, Jesus is speaking to John, who's on the island of Patmos. He's been sent there for his faith, right? And, and it is there that Jesus shows up and says to John, write there for the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. We're given clear insight right from the beginning of the book of Revelation that the book of Revelation is intended to be read chronologically. Where all the confusion often takes place through, when going through the book of Revelation is people like to jump into chapter 6 and 9 and 12 and 21 and throw in a chapter 2 here and there, and they kind of spread it all like a shotgun, and it gets extremely confusing as you go through it. How many have been confused going through the book of Revelation? Right, but what we see Jesus doing here right from the beginning is he lays it out that this is to be read chronologically. He says the things that you've seen, 
the things that are and the things that are yet to come. And that's exactly what we see as we look at the, 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 the 22 chapters of Revelation. Chapters one through three is what we refer to as the church age. These are the things that, Gene, that John has seen and the things that are. And it is here in these chapters that he is addressing the churches that were literally present at that time, but also the churches that are present during the church age. As you look at chapters one through three, we, we see what Jesus instructs and corrects in the church. We see that being primary problems in the church across the world today. And so we see chapters one through three is known as the church age. But something very interesting happens in chapter four and five. Now the church is no longer present on the earth. The church is absent from the earth, but now is present before the throne. Something happened somewhere between chapter three and chapter four, and it's the rapture of the church. It's the removal of the church from the earth. And so we see in chapter four and five, we see the rapture of the church. The church is now present before the throne. And now that the church has been removed from the earth, we see chapters 6 through 18 lays out for us the great tribulation. What is the great tribulation? The great tribulation is the wrath of God coming upon the earth. That's why the church can't be on the earth. Because we've been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, we will miss the wrath of God. This is not the wrath of Satan coming on the earth. We are, this is the wrath of God coming on the earth. And because we are believers, we are not going to be coming under the wrath of God. Hallelujah. Because if you read Revelation chapter 6 through 18, you don't want to be here. And so chapter 6 through 18, we see the wrath of God taking place. And then in chapter 19, at the end of that tribulation period, we see the second coming of Christ. And the church that was raptured, was taken from the earth, will come back with Christ. And Christ will set up his kingdom here on the earth. In chapter 20, we see the millennial reign of Christ. It's in chapter 20, we'll read about the judgments in the lake of fire. And then chapter 21, after Satan and the false prophets and the fallen angels and all of those who have rejected Christ are kicked into the lake of fire, chapter 21 opens up and talks about a new heaven and a new earth. God restoring everything the way it was designed to be. Chapter 22 just lays out what forever looks like. You know how long forever is? Forever. Forever and ever. Ever. We can't possibly wrap our arms around this concept. You see, this is a great reminder that, that, that God holds the future and all of the events of the future in his hands. I know there's such chaos going on in the world. My heart breaks just like yours as we see the news and we read about what's going on in the world. And the only comfort I can pull from is the fact that God is in control of all things. He is not watching the news to see what he's going to do. But everything that we see going on around us is God setting the stage for this event that is soon to take place. There is nothing that takes place apart from God's sovereign mandate. So where does this future Palm Sunday fit in to this plan of God? Right where chapter 6 ends and seven, chapter 7 begins, 
We see that the wrath of God is about to be poured out, but before that happens, chapter seven talks about the 144,000 Jews that are going to be saved. So we see God holding back the wrath of God at this moment, and the 144,000 come to faith. We read about this in verse nine of chapter seven. It says, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne, before the lamb. I love this. This is a picture of the raptured church and all of those who have put faith in Christ from the beginning of time, all God's people gathering together with the angelic host in the presence of God. From every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with what? Palm branches in their hands. And crying out with a loud voice, just like they started that day, but they missed it in Jerusalem. Crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were sitting around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. This is going to take place right before the tribulation is unleashed. And it's wonderful because it sets the stage for us to realize that when all hell breaks loose on earth, as the wrath of God is being poured out, there's still worship going on before the throne. You see, Palm Sunday begins in the streets of Jerusalem in verse 9, but it continues before the throne in verse 10 during the tribulation and it will reach its final fulfillment during the millennium. When Christ comes back and we come back with Christ and Christ rules on the earth for a thousand years. And that's where Zechariah is talking about him ruling over the nations, him speaking peace over the nations. And then look at verse 19, chapter 19 and verse 11. John writes and says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, not a donkey, but a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. It's the same one that John in his gospel opened up and says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen and white and pure were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. 
On his robe and on his thigh, he is the name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now listen, this is during the millennium period. Not everybody on the earth during the millennium period is going to be a believer. And that's why, that, that's why God is going to be, Jesus is going to be striking down the nations. And there's going to still be, I can't imagine how that it will be. You'd think everybody's going to bow the knee at that point, but there's still, still going to be pr- sin present on the earth. And when sin is present on the earth, it'll always find a place to influence people. This is what is ahead. God, God is in control. This is more real than the person standing next to you. There's no need to fear what the future holds unless you've not embraced Jesus as your Lord. Notice, notice Jesus' response to the Jews who weren't ready. You know, we, 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 we see what took place in Jerusalem that day is a type of this final fulfillment that we'll see later on down the road. And what Jesus says to the Jews in tears, you weren't ready for the visitation. And as a result, judgment came upon the Jews. The scripture has much to say about the events that will lead to the second coming of Christ. No man knows the day or the hour, but the scripture does give us signs that will point to his coming. What's most interesting is that all of the signs that we see laid out in the scripture, most, if not every one of them, is being unfolded before our very eyes. We live in a time unlike the church has ever lived before. And I've heard, I've heard so many people say, well, but you know what? I mean, there was always, the church always thought that they were going to be the generation to see the second coming of Christ. The difference between them and us is Israel. We're the only generation to see Israel become a nation. And what we see taking place before our very eyes could be that very moment that the scriptures talk about. And what's interesting is, while every one of those events are being taking place before our very eyes, every one of those signs are not pointing to the rapture, They're pointing to the second coming. And what's even more interesting than that is if the the second coming is that close based on the signs, the rapture takes place seven years before the second coming. And so if we are close to the second coming, folks, at any moment, the church can be raptured off the earth. There is no sign for the rapture. We have signs for the end time. That's great news for every one of us who await his coming. But just like Jesus looked into the streets of Jerusalem and wept because they did not embrace him, knowing that that wrath was going to come upon them, likewise, for those who don't await his appearing, there is a wrath to come. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And I think what we see in type in Jerusalem that day in the rejection of Jesus the Messiah that day and the judgment that came upon the Jews in that day is a small picture of a bigger reality of a people who have rejected Christ. And so the question is this, are we ready? Not are you perfect, have you embraced Christ as your Lord? Has the embracing of Christ influenced the way you live your life? Have you exchanged everything you're trusting in to get into heaven for what he's done for you on the cross as the only means of getting on over to the other side? Because in the end of the day, there is no work that we can do. It is the embracing of the Son of God. Maybe you're here this morning, maybe you're watching online, maybe you're watching on TV, and you've never asked Christ to forgive you of your sins, to be your Lord and your Savior. Don't wait. Eternity is a very long time. The wages of sin is death, Paul writes, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so God has provided a way in this arena called time for us to respond to Jesus. So Father, I pray, Lord, all throughout this building, Lord, all for those who are watching online or on TV, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to the hearts of each and every one, that there would not be a person that is hearing this message this morning that would try to justify not embracing the Son. Holy Spirit, would you bring to the awareness of each person their need for a Savior, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every one of us are in need of a Savior. If there's any other way, Jesus would have never had to come. I pray, Father, that you would draw through your goodness and your kindness your sons and your daughters back to you. If that's you this morning, just take a moment and and ask God to forgive you of your sin. Recognize what Jesus did for you on what we have come to know as Good Friday, the day he went to the cross It was not a good day for him, but it was good for us because he paid the price for our sins. And ask him to come and be your Lord and your Savior. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Folks, I'll tell you this, as we enter into Holy Week, it's a great time to be talking about what Christ has done Let's not let the festivities and the Easter bunny eclipse the reality of the risen Savior, right? Let's not fail to recognize the power of Good Friday when Christ went to the cross. If you have people in your life that don't know Christ, get them out here Friday so they can see the message of what Christ did for them so that they might embrace the Savior and be able to celebrate on Easter Sunday the hope
that we have in Christ. Amen.